Annyeonghaseyo. This is Kyle with uh, Korean Adoptee Stories. Uh, this is part of our Real Adoptee Weekly uh, broadcast. And I'm with Travis, who's my twin brother, and also Wu A Yi. My Korean is a little rusty. Um, and she's a, a Korean uh, author that kind of wants to talk about her book uh, that is discussing a really key topic that's actually happened around, like right now, the Floyd and the, and the police brutality and the black people. And I think she has some really great things to share. And I'll let Travis uh, continue. So I just want to state that uh, Korean Adoptee Stories is a little bit different than like other social media groups on Facebook. They don't in really enjoy or they don't really like promoting other people's work. But I feel that since we're all CADs, I feel that this is a really good benefit to get to know each other and to help promote each other's service. When we initially were part of this group called Guide, the whole idea was to start this this town, CAD town, to help promote other people's services, their passions, their jobs, their services that they might provide. So this is the first step in which we try to get some more information about a CAD who has wrote a book and wants to talk about it and it relates to the political environment of uh, Black Lives Matter, what's going on with the world today, the current events, and how that relates to Korean adoptees and, in general, Asian people. So we are here to introduce Wu A. Yi. She is a Korean adoptee that we're going to get to know a little bit. She has a book that she wants to help promote, and we're going to help her do that. She also wants to discuss some topics related to that book. So why don't we get ahead and get started? So why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself, uh, where are you, uh, your name, where are you from, uh, your adoption story a little bit, but go ahead and uh, uh, tell us what you would like to, to share. Sure. So uh, I go by Wu Yi. Uh, that's a, my pen name. I'm, uh, I was born from Songnam, uh, particularly Songnam Hospital. I was adopted at four months old to the D.C. area. I grew up in Northern Virginia, and then I moved to Denver in 2017. Great. So how is your adoption story? Uh, do you actually uh, get well with, along with your family, or could you describe a little bit about that? I get along with them now. Uh, I haven't always gotten along with them. Uh, there was a time period when I was dating a black man, and that kind of made our relationship a little bit more challenging. Could you describe some of the challenges that you actually uh, uh, face uh, with that relationship? So, uh, actually, it wasn't just one black man. I was I dated two black men for a very long time, and I think there were just some concerns around with my father about being part of a black family, um, and then also. Um, one of my exes did not get along with my father very well, and so they just would kind of butt heads. So uh, with Washington, D.C. area, I assume they're actually probably what, where you grew up. I assume there's actually pretty, it's pretty diverse, and there's uh, probably black people. And uh, how about uh, Korean adoptees? Or were you the only one in school, or could you describe that a little bit? Right. So... Interestingly enough, when I went to high school there, and I was in Fairfax County, um, I felt that it was only like 1% minority. So I really felt like I was surrounded by white people. However, now I look at the demographics and it's like 25% Korean, and I'm like, how did that happen and why wasn't I there when it happened? 
I think that's a lot of uh, a lot of Korean adoptees actually kind of experience that. Uh, I, I think even with my brother and I, we actually grew up in a pretty white town. We grew up in Hastings, and there wasn't a lot of a multicultural diversity until we actually got into college. So when did you start uh, uh, coming across uh, multicolored people and, uh, I guess, black people? Was it young or were you uh, a little bit older? Oh, I mean, I've seen diversity, like, even when I was young. Actually, my first memory uh, of seeing someone who is black, my only memory was I said, uh, you didn't color in the lines. <laughs> so I guess there's another question. I think you have a really great perspective since you are around a lot of black people. Uh, d were your family racist at all, or did they just kind of had to get used to being around different people than themselves? So um, my, my father... I'm going to be a little careful here. Uh, so my father, uh, he had a, a black coworker he got along with well. Um, he, um, you know, did not see himself as racist. Um, I actually talk in the book about how um, the reason why it's so challenging to, to broach this topic right now is because a lot of white people see the word racist as a slur even though a lot of other people don't think it is, um, it's taken that way. That actually just into a great topic. So like with the, the police brutality but with black people, but you being a Korean adoptee and not black, uh, what uh, has been your perspective? What is your uh, a viewpoint of the things going on with this, the, the world right at, at this moment? Uh, so... So with um, the whole George Floyd incident, everyone has become a lot more aware of, um, even if it's always existed, um, these issues. Um, some people are still not willing to face the reality, but I think more people are willing to, to understand or at least learn about what's happening. Honestly, this has been going on for quite some time. Many... Um, a very long time actually and some people have just not been paying attention so the book actually uh it's called the relationship between cads and the black community 92 to 20 and the reason why i say it says 92 is because when i first started writing this it was back in 2007 so i had no idea that george floyd was you know going to come up in the future i was really just focused on the rodney king incident in uh, 1992 if you could explain a little bit about the Rodney King, for those we're that pretty don't young, know. so I don't recall that. Could you just explain a little about? Sure. So it's it's been called the um, '92 LA uprising. Um, it it happened around uh, the Rod. Uh, what happened was that Rodney King was being beaten by several police officers. There were a lot of parallels to what happened with George Floyd. It was four police officers. Um, but the thing that makes it unique is the fact that it also involves Koreans. So Koreans were portrayed as the bad guys. And what happened is that the media portrayed them as um, being rich business owners and a lot of riots were taking out against these Korean business owners. However, what I mentioned in the book that, um, or at least someone I interviewed mentioned in the book, is that what really happened was that the, the police were funneling the riot, 
the um, uprising towards the Korean area, the Korean town. So that's why they were able to spin the media that way so that they could make it sound like there's um, a battle between Asians and the black community, whereas it was really more a battle between the black community and the white community, or at least white police. And it seems like the Asian people, the Korean people, got, became collateral damage, you're saying? Yes. And so that's also affected how sometimes black people have perceived us, unfortunately. So with us being collateral damage, you still support the Black Lives Matter movement, even though it kind of uh, involved us and what is your perspective? Uh, maybe you could describe a little bit more about the, the book and what you wrote about as well. Right. So even though I start off talking about uh, the 92 incident, I also want to say that this is how how some people perceive the relationship between Koreans and the black community, but I do want to emphasize that things are a lot better than they look on the surface because that was all a media portrayal, which is not necessarily true. And also, I, I got interested in this book because, like I was saying, I had was dating a, a black man at the time, and I was very uh, interested about it because there's a lot of information about Korean adoptees being married to white men or Korean adoptees being married to Korean men, but you don't see a lot of information about Korean uh, adoptees being married to black men, for example. I think that's true. Uh, do you actually have any kids with the, I guess, the, if I could call them Blasians at all or, or no? No. Oh, so okay. my husband is white Okay. and my husband was very supportive of me um, doing this. I guess I have one question. So regarding using Koreans as collateral damage, was the whole story about where a black person was getting in fight with a Korean businessman and then the police got involved and ended up beating this businessman for, or for this black guy for infringing upon the, the Korean business or what was the, the story behind that? Um, so, um, I didn't actually focus particularly on that story, uh, but I do want to put a little bit more context in this. So, there was, um, what led up to this and what also added to the media portrayal was that a woman named Latasha Harlins was a, a black girl, 15 years old. Uh, she was going to buy, um, a $2 orange juice and a Korean woman shot her in the back of the head. It happened around the same time as the Rodney King incident. So some people have conflated the two incidents together. Some people don't even know about it because it's been hidden in history because for whatever reason, the media does not want to keep it alive. So as plain as devil's advocate, I guess, uh, there probably could be some people that kind of blame the, I guess, the Rodney King incident for uh, the death of Koreans kind of because they are using them as collateral damage but you you actually have an empathetic heart uh, towards uh, the black people could you actually describe a little bit why and uh, maybe a little bit more uh, about the other experiences that you've written in your book as well right um, so I, again I got interested in this book because I was dating a black man I also mentioned the hard reality that sometimes both of us would have uh, internalized racism um, 
both against ourselves or against each other. And it's unfortunate because, you know, we, we thought that we loved each other and everything like that. Uh, but I really wanted to dissect and understand where did this come from and um, why is it there and what can we do about it, et cetera. I'm going to be open about this. Uh, I, I really am glad that you came up with me with this topic because as a Korean adoptee, I'll be honest, I don't think I'm both my brother and I aren't as informed of what it's really like living as a black person. And my brother and I tend to be kind of, we don't tend to take things as seriously as we should. And sometimes it gets taken to wrong context. And the thing is when we were actually working with guide, my brother actually posted uh, a picture of himself of an, of an avatar of a black person, but a lot of people got offended by that. Can you explain a little bit about the importance of, of, even though an avatar is someone that uh, you can make uh, whoever you want to be in a way, I think now that these times have become so sensitive, it's really not appropriate to actually make yourself any particular race, especially the black people, especially with everything that they have gone through. I was wondering if you have any perspective about that. Right. So I think it, it kind of comes down toward uh, privilege. Um, so there's a thing, there's a word out called kyriarchy, which pretty much is, um, it's like patriarchy plus all the other kinds of ways that people have privilege. And so right now during this time, we're really focused more as a nation on people who have less privilege to kind of raise them up a little bit more. Um, and people who have privilege do not necessarily know the history behind everything um, that they might not take seriously. Um, so, like, of course, um, blackface, as you mentioned, is a very serious uh, topic in the history of, of black people because it was used during slavery times and it was used as a way to, of entertainment at their behalf. I mean, expense, sorry, at their expense. And um, so... And then also kind of things like appropriation and things like that, I think I should mention that it's important to understand what, what the history is. So with, so exa for example, with uh, African-American hair, um, they're still to this day not allowed to wear um, traditional styles in the workplace. Um, whereas people who are more privileged are able to wear those same styles and be applauded for it. Whereas they weren't born that way and they weren't, you know, they didn't have to use that hairstyle as, you know, one of the very few options available. Are you talking about like corn rolls or Afro or yes. both or maybe, okay. Uh, yeah, both. They banned them in schools too. I think I heard, I saw a post one time. Right. Schools, workplaces, et cetera. So how long did this uh, book take you to write, and when did you start uh, writing this? You said you started this in 2007, and then uh, I guess now you were able to finish the book. Uh, what uh, kind of inspired you uh, to finish it? So I started in, in 2007. It actually was part of my thesis. Um, my thesis was about Korean adoptees. I ended up being so enthusiastic about writing about Korean adoptees um, that it ended up being a 1,000 pages. So naturally I had to cut a lot of material and I decided to focus just on Korean adoptees. However, um, because of um, 
you know, how I was feeling during that time period and where my life was, I really wanted to return to that topic at a later date. And I just felt that um, 2020 was that appropriate later date for me to uh, go back to it. So could you uh, a little, give us a little bit of details about the book? So you talk about uh, what we were talking about earlier. What else do you actually discuss in the book? Uh, actually, I just want to let everyone know I did order the book, but it didn't come here on time. But I thought that we could probably just do an interview, and I thought that uh, uh, Wu Aiyi could explain a little bit about it. Right. So a lot of the book is not actually just my voice. It's a lot of people's voices. So I also wanted to highlight that I interviewed a lot of people for this book, and so there are a lot of different opinions in this book. Um, I interviewed um, Korean adoptees, Black Korean adoptees, um, as well as uh, Rodney King's mentor. And uh, in 2007, I, highlight, I interviewed seven people, and so I thought it was appropriate that in 2020 I interviewed 20 people to kind of go with the year. So there are at least 27 interviews in the book and a lot of different opinions. Could you describe some of the, the uh, general opinions of, of the people that you interviewed? Was it warm towards the what was happening now, or was it negative? Or uh, could you describe a little bit about that? Right. So I actually focused my interviews on people who are um, sympathetic to the black community, um, and there are there and even among those people, um, there was still a lot of diversity of opinion uh, in terms of. Um, like the the relationship between Korean adoptees and the black community in general, not just be not just themselves. I got a question: since Blasians are black Korean adoptees, do they have a different opinion outlook since they're both half black compared to just full Korean blooded adopt Korean adoptees? Do they have a general sense of of like? take in which they inherit their their black roots and feel that they are more in a uh, I don't know more in a discriminatory type face or do they have privilege like the rest of the society when they're viewed as Korean adoptees so um, I would say that the the black Korean adoptees um, they there is more of a, a a conflict about which trauma was worse, being adopted or, or being black, because um, they all had very different experiences with that. Uh, I think that it depends a lot on the family as to whether the adoption was traumatic or not, and also at the, the age that they were adopted. Um, but I would also say that some of them felt that being black was more of a traumatic thing than being adopted just because it's something that people see every day people people see their their skin color every day and they re react based on that rather whereas they no, not everybody knows that you're adopted unless you actually give that information out yourself so in a way i guess you could say that though they're half korean half black it seems like they're they're black uh like they're mostly viewed as black people versus their Korean roots. Is that what you're trying to get at? For the most part, yes. I think most uh, black Korean adoptees do relate 
or identify as black. I have come across um, one person who identified more as Korean, but she was not someone I was able to interview. So could you describe a little bit uh, of the traumas uh, these people actually had uh, when you're actually doing your interviews? Are, are you willing to, to share a little bit about uh, kind of the general uh, uh, thesis about what you actually discovered with your book and your interviews? Right. So um, I did talk a lot about uh, trauma because I think that both adoptees and the black community has some uh, trauma that is not actually being uh, taken seriously by the psychiatric um, industry, or at least not as seriously as it should. And there, there are different types of trauma with both of those. Um, and, and honestly, I felt like I talked more about trauma than they did necessarily because I think that in a, in a quick, like, half-hour interview, people don't really want to get that deep. You know, it's just not very comfortable, especially if they don't know me, haven't met me before. Um, so so I feel like I actually talked more about trauma than, than they did it in the interviews just because of that dynamic. Can you actually just explain some of the questions you said? You maybe their name and did you have any trauma or was there any association with the black culture? Can you explain some of the questions that you asked during the interview? Uh, so some of the questions I asked were um, like, which was more traumatic, being black or being adopted? Uh, I talked about their their family. Did they have uh, black parents or white parents and how did that affect how they were raised? Um, I asked different questions about um, the relationship they had with Kore uh, other Korean adoptees. Um, and uh, sometimes I asked about their children, if they had any children. Um, so it was, it was a variety. I think most of the questions I kind of kept the same for everyone, but sometimes uh, conversations would kind of veer off into another direction, and I would go with it. So I guess uh, speaking more about uh, race in general and everything going on, uh, since you ha seem to have a, a, a great lens being a Korean adoptee and also seeing the lens from a black person, what are some of the solutions that you actually kind of think that would actually benefit uh, what's going on right now? Obviously, you've written a book and so you're spreading awareness on the issue. Is there anything else uh, that you think uh, you actually know uh, more than some other people that are kind of, hey, this Black Lives Matter is just starting issues, uh, and they don't really agree with it, and they think that they're just attacking the police, and they don't believe in defunding the police. Could you uh, explain a little bit about what you think needs to happen uh, to make uh, the world between less divided between black people and white people, but also uh, Korean adoptees and other races in general? Right. Well, there are many ways to help. Um, I particularly focused on um, talking with our uh, adoptive parents and even birth parents because I felt that like if we could reach our parents um, that we would be able to um, like make more of a difference because as you probably know most Korean adoptees are adopted by uh, white families. Um, majority Christian, some Jewish, um, you know, people from both sides of the aisle politically. And I feel that um, a lot of white people are 
because of their privilege and because of the company they keep that they're kind of shielded from the reality. And so the reason why they don't think that there's such a big deal is because no one's actually brought it to the, to them. And I feel that um, if we can learn more ourselves and, and be more educated on, on what the issues are, that we can bring that to the people in our, um, in our circles, uh, particularly our parents, um, also siblings possibly. And in addition, I, I think that um, beyond just uh, educating ourselves and educating other, helping to educate others, it's also important to um, do like uh, political actions in terms of like, you know, calling up your senator or, you know, uh, purchasing products from uh, black owned companies. So it seems as though that you mentioned that blacks are not only targeted when it comes to just the general population, but also Koreans. What is your take it, like right now presently? Because I've heard of like, like funding, not funding, but organizations that's like for Asians, for Black Lives Matter, things like that to nature. Is there situations that you feel that the black community is still resentful towards Koreans because of that incident that happened back in 1992? Or has people forgive and forget? Or have they become more aware of it? And have they been able to deal with that situation better? Or is there still a clash between the Korean community and black community? Or is it even possible that many Korean adoptees associate with the minorities of black people? Uh, so there are a lot of questions there, but I will try to answer them. Um, so I think a lot of of this depends actually on location. Like, for example, if you're in a city or if you're in a farm or if you're in the suburbs, and what is the demographics of your area and what kind of, um, you know, like, for example, so... I mentioned that Baltimore, for example, has a huge black population. And um, LA, despite what the media would have you believe, actually has mostly an Asian population. And um, there are a lot of other states in between and, and cities in between where there's all different kinds of mixes of things. And so it really, a lot of times it also depends on exposure. If people haven't been exposed to a lot of black people, then they might end up having kinds of backwards beliefs about them. Um, same goes for if people haven't been exposed to Korean people. And so I think a lot of um, the challenge is just like getting more exposure to people. And sometimes uh, that kind of means like having to go into like even like Hollywood or something, which I don't know is going to happen anytime soon because we know how much Asian representation there is in Hollywood. Um, but I think that it's also important to just have deep conversations with people. Like, for example... Um, I think that in like Northern Virginia, there are a lot of people who are uh, a lot of black people who are okay with Koreans. But if you get get into like maybe a deeper part of DC or maybe Baltimore, then there might be some negative beliefs towards Koreans just because they haven't really been exposed or they only believe what the media tells them. So what's what's the best situation or the best proposal that you have in terms of like, hey, this incident happened like quite a bit a long time ago. I just want you guys to realize that, you know, we as Korean people are not as bad as what the media t attacks us at or takes us as. What do you think is the best solution when it comes to 
like the interactions you do have in DC where black people are a little bit uh, animated towards the Korean community. Is there anything that could be done potentially, or is it something that there's really nothing that can be handled for that? Right. Um, and also, in, in addition to that, I would say that a lot of the people I interviewed had different opinions as well. Uh, some people are more positive and other people were more resigned. Um, but I, I think that in order to, to like, you know, unite everybody, um, it just it, it just goes back to, again, like um, exposure. Sometimes, sometimes it takes a higher level of exposure, like not just like saying hi and waving, but like maybe inviting someone into your home um, and like getting to know them over dinner or something. Um, and, and also just um, a lot of representation can also happen with, uh, with HR, with, um, diver with uh, hiring uh, the, the right people, but also people who are qualified. Um, and um, a lot also happens to, to be at the higher level. So a lot of times people will look at um, who are the CEOs of a company. And um, if it's all white people, then, you know, maybe their talk about diversity is just kind of like just, you know, to make themselves sound good. Um, but you really have to look at, at those different levels of like, you know, uh, like, and it's not necessarily hiring people to like fill a quota. It's more like hiring people that are, are qualified and recognizing that they're qualified and not choosing someone else just because they happen to be white. Um, so uh, I think a lot of change can also happen at the corporate level. I was curious. I, this kind of reminds me of a Netflix um, documentary I was like watching a while ago about black people and the criminalization and that. I think that I don't remember the, the exact statistic, but there's a lot more black people in the criminal system uh, because uh, of the war on drugs. And since a lot of black people uh, were caught up in that, they didn't have as much privilege as some of the white people or even the Asian people that a lot of them were kind of trapped in the prison system. Uh, are you aware of this issue? And did this come up at all in your book at all? or? Right. So I, I actually, I've read uh, a couple of books on anti-racism and one of the books that I most highly recommend is actually um, The New Jim Crow, uh, which is a book by Michelle Alexander. Uh, you can also get it on audiobook. And uh, she does a great job of really getting into the nitty gritty facts and figures and not just opinions. Um, so and, and, and the facts and figures are still astonishing and astounding every time I hear them. Uh, for example, there are just some things that I remember, like a lot of people don't realize this, that the reason, so when prisoners leave prison and they've done their time, they're released to their family. Well, unfortunately for black families, they're really hesitant to bring in their, their black family members, even if they are family, because of the laws in place. So, uh, for example, if that person is, uh, has a, a moment of recidivism or, like, you know, gets back into drugs for, like, a moment or uh, selling or whatever, um, the people that can get punished for it are not just that one person, but also their family members, even if they don't know that that's been happening. So, for example, people have been going 
been able to go to prison if like their grandson uh, was selling pot and they happen to be like a senior who needs to be taken care of. It's just, it's very unfair how this is all unfolding. Um, and a lot of people don't realize about things like this happening. Do you feel, I guess I'm just related to the George Floyd incident and the police. Do you feel like right now the best opportunity for black people to not become targeted is that the police need to take responsibility for their actions, behaviors when it comes to violence? Do you feel that yes. is the, a good solution to get the target off black people's back? Do you actually uh, agree? Uh, do you actually think defunding the police is something that needs to be done or you don't know? So I, I think that a lot of people feel that defunding the police might also be a little bit of an extreme reaction. Uh, but I do feel that there are ways that they can um, be channeled to other ways. So like I feel that they should have um, like social workers at the ready uh, because most of their calls are actually social work related. And so it's not appropriate to, to put a, a cop who's trained like a, like a soldier in that situation when what they really need is maybe like uh, financial assistance or something. So I, I'm curious. So since the media, everything is like pretty much blasted in public now. So you, is this stuff what you see in the media where like uh, the police being brutal against the, the black people? Is that more of a is that the media more focusing on that or is that actually really happening? And has that always happened in the past since? Like uh, like 1992, like your book states, has this been going on like for a long time? Right. So there's actually a wall in the UK uh, because these kinds of things actually go far beyond just America. Um, there's a, a wall put up in the UK that names every single person's name who was unjustly killed by a police officer. And it is astonishing how many names are on that wall. Uh, you, you might be able to Google it. And what's your viewpoint on the people that say all lives matter? Do you think that's racist still and people have to stop doing that and be more aware? So I, I do think it is racist and I can understand why it's racist. Um, so the, the situation is that the reason why people say Black Lives Matter is because um, what has been happening historically is that black lives have mattered less to the justice system, and that is particularly focused on the justice system um, with cops and, and, uh, and also prosecutors and so forth. And I think that when people say that all lives matter, they're not taking into account that historical uh, fact. So I guess the one question is, is that why do you think people should read your book? Is there something that you want them to get at, get at or learn from, or what's the one thing that you'd like to get a, get people to your, your be aware of? Your main message about this book. That's right. So I really want people to take away from this book uh, why why people might think that there is a bad relationship between Koreans, uh, Korean adoptees, and the Black community, and to also realize that it's not as bad as it sounds or looks um, and how all these facts happened how they all um, work together how it all came to be it's a lot it's very intricate the things that I'm dealing with the subjects I'm t 
talking about. They're all very intricate and all very detailed. And uh, you can't just like have a quick like, you know, one liner to kind of explain everything. Well, it seems like you can't generalize a lot of the situations that you interview because right. everything was all individual uh, experiences, right. not just uh, black and white, perhaps. Right. Oh, so is there anything else that you'd like to add with your book? The racism, the Black Lives Matter, the the police brutality. Is there uh, anything that you think that we may have missed? And I think after this, we'd like to delve a little bit more into your actually your own traumas or your own adoption experiences, if you could. Uh, so there were a lot of topics that came out in the book, some topics that I anticipated coming out and also some topics I did not anticipate coming out. Um, so I also want to, you know, since I, I talk about how it's not just one broad brush for everything, I think I wanted to highlight that everyone has such unique experiences. So there are uh, black adoptees who have black parents, um, black adoptees who have white parents. We've got um, Korean adoptees who have like um, parents who are not typical of of uh, all most Korean adoptees. We've got um, situations of abuse. We've got situations where they had happy homes. I mean, everyone has such a a diverse experience. And I just wanted to highlight the diversity of that experience and that uh, we we take all of that into account. Thanks. So I guess I wanted to ask, I know that you came across a lot of people that were generally positive towards the Black Lives Movement, you said. So what about those people that are actually rather kind of apathetic? How do we actually encourage uh, the people that actually aren't listening and aren't seeing the the reality of things and trying to kind of brush it off. Uh, is there any other uh, uh, pointers that you could actually help uh, people kind of listen about these these topics that are going on, especially with the, the racism and black people? Right. Um, so if, if you learn anything about anti-racism, there are actually lots of different, um, there are some new words that have come out of it. Uh, so some of that is uh, calling out first and calling in. I personally do not like the idea of calling out because I feel that it embarrasses people. Um, I prefer much more to call people in. So people that I think, um, you know, if only they, they understood more um, what the issues are, the history, what the history is and so forth, um, my ideal is to call people in to say, hey, look, I heard you say whatever, or I noticed you do whatever, and this is why there's an issue with that, um, and, and there's a lot of maybe historical background you might not know about it, and I wanted to enlighten you about that. You seem actually really well learned about uh, Black uh, Lives Matter and stuff, and the Black systemic racism could you actually offer some other aside from uh, of course reading your book is there any other material that you could actually offer to people that uh that are kind of curious about the black uh racism in history do you have any other good books that they could read or or movies or documentaries or tv uh shows like that right well i actually mentioned those also in my book um but Another thing I think, it's not necessarily a book or, or a movie or anything, but I think, but there's an organization called Hollaback, um, and it's it actually teaches people um, not just around race, but also around all different kinds of harassment, like how to, how to handle uh, harassment situations. Um, 
and also as a bystander. I guess someone who's a little bit more ignorant when it comes to the black community. I hear a lot of stories when it comes to, you know, white versus black, but there's very little compared to Asian versus black. Do you feel that the subject matter when it comes white person, black person polarized. is more polarized than Asian versus black? Or do you feel that they're one and the same? Or what's your take on that? So being Asian at this time uh, is a very complicated thing. Um, so some black people, because of our uh, model minority stereotype, lump us in with white people, and that's why they're not as fond of us. Um, whereas other people might realize, oh, we're just minorities like them, and we're not like white people at all. Um, so it's, it's really kind of interesting to see how people have different opinions based on their own assumptions and also it can also have a lot to do with like how you behave if you behave like you're privileged then they might lump you in with white people if you behave like you know you've also been wronged um then they'll like see you as one of them i got a question i, I hate to generalize the people in your book since everyone has a their unique en environment and experiences but generally did you feel that most Asians associate with the minorities, or do you feel they mostly associate with white privilege, having like adoptee white parents, or what's your take on that? So, and this is just from what I've heard from other people, um, but I feel that there is a sense that the Korean adoptees who are more aligned with the black community feel like minorities within their own Korean adoptee community. Uh, because a lot of Korean adoptees being raised by white parents still sometimes feel like they are white themselves or they haven't even acknowledged their Asian side. How about black people? Like you did interview black adoptees or, or like Blasian adoptees? I'm just curious. Uh, both. Oh, both. So my question yes. to you is the black adoptees with white parents, did they often associate themselves as black or did they associate themselves having white privilege or what's the take on that? So the thing is, um, being black is a lot more kind of in your face than being Asian. Um, Asian's kind of also seen as the invisible minority, um, unfortunately. Um, but being being black, I mean, it's very much like people people react to it more. And so even for a black adoptee raised by white parents, they're always going to still see themselves as black majority. For, for the most part, and they might even end up dating and marrying uh, into a black family. I think it actually kind of, this kind of reminds me of someone, I've, I've been actually chatting with someone who's actually adoptee, but been raised by white parents, and I was kind of surprised to hear her side of the story that she's kind of not uh, supportive of the Black Lives Matter, and it made me kind of think that maybe it's uh, the person's upbringing uh, that kind of influences on, on what they kind of believe uh, and like, if you're w w more with a white family, you tend to be more uh, white minded and probably have that privilege versus if you were like adopting a black family, you probably end up having to f having that idea that, uh, racism and, and all the, 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 the struggles that they have to kind of, uh, have within their family is, is just kind of an interesting, uh, thing that I, I heard from, uh, this, uh, black adoptee woman.
Yeah. Um, well, um, so for example, like I have a friend who's Korean adoptee, but also um, very much supports Black Lives Matter. And she told me the other day that like, um, she appreciated that like, I also support Black Lives Matter because actually very few uh, Korean adoptees that she knows, um, you know, I might have a different experience, but um, they, they don't really focus on Black Lives Matter so much, or they don't really, you know, they aren't learned about it, they haven't read about it, they don't, might not know if, or believe it exists, um, that, that it's a situation. Um, so um, there is that. I think a lot of adoptees, maybe Korean adoptees or adoptees in general, they're kind of dealing with their own traumas that they also feel like they haven't been given a, a voice to. And I'm sure maybe you can relate. Uh, so it, it must have been kind of an interesting experience, you trying to heal from your own uh, issues being adopted and when you're dating a black person and the racism that he experienced. It must have been uh, quite of a interesting experience for you, I'm guessing. Well, it was also a bit of a shock because, you know, they always treated me, you know, as their daughter, you know, but like when it came to someone outside who I um, aligned with, that all of a sudden it was a different situation. Like, and this is just an example, but like my, my parents, I think, wanted to see me as the young child that they knew at five, right? And so um, the idea that I would be espousing things that were um, more progressive, um, they thought that I was brainwashed. And so they would call me brainwashed to my face. Um, and, and that kind of hurts, you know. I guess that kind of brings up to Prius my own question. So you're trying to, you kind of had that struggle of trying to influence your parents that, hey, these issues exist and you're not listening. Uh, were you able to get it through their, their heads or, or how were you able to approach that issue or is it something that you can't uh, talk about with them at this moment? Um, so they are, um, you know, I, I, I have to be very patient <laughs> with them sometimes. You Maybe know? that's just the, the general uh, uh, words of wisdom for dealing with other people that even are outside of family that aren't uh, as aware of these issues that maybe it's it's best to be calm and not patient and not kind of uh, instigating things and, and starting riots. Right. So I think, um, so there are several Korean adoptees um, who are of the opinion that it's better to break ties with their parents than to be racist. And, you know, I think that there's kind of a middle ground somewhere. I think it's better to, to keep ties with adoptive parents, even if it might be a challenge, uh, because you never really know when that moment is when a light clicks on, you know, and, and um, so I know a lot of adoptees can probably relate to um, being raised in a Christian background, for instance, and, you know, the idea with uh, Christianity, which is different from being Jewish, is that there's more of a proselytizing element. And so sometimes the idea behind what I'm trying to say is that the idea is that like you like if you were Christian and talking to an atheist, then you still like don't necessarily give up on them just because they have a certain belief. You still, you know, like share what you know of 
you know, your religion or whatever. And, you know, maybe one day things were, will change, but you don't necessarily just give up on people. I think I actually agree with you uh, there. And it kind of brings up another topic. Uh, are you actually for adoption or are you against adoption? If you don't mind uh, sharing about that. So I believe that adoption is an industry fueled by money. Um, that is my opinion. You're not alone. There's actually quite a few adoptees, I believe. Well, a lot of adoptees believe it's childhood trafficking. Are you at that level where you feel it should be stopped or you're not even sure about that? I feel that there should be more support for single mothers. So it's interesting. So with my my birth family, um, I still haven't really had a reunion with them yet. But like with my birth family... It's, it's hard to stop your train of thought. So you actually do know who your birth family is, it sounds like? Well, sort of. So I know my birth mom's name. I don't know her address. I don't know how to contact her. I don't know the rest of my family. Okay. Are you aware if they're alive at all or not? Or They are alive. Okay, um, I'm just not able to contact them right now. Um, I do actually have someone who is uh, reaching out. Have you tried? You know, we actually met our birth family because 10 years ago i wrote a letter to my you know your uh you know your adoption agency that you're adopted to here right yes have you ever tried reaching out to them asking if you guys could help connect me with the family in korea or right so i am what i am what you call a uh, forever searcher so i have gone through my adoption agency i have gone through um kbs i have gone through I am currently going through NCRC. Um, I have tried DNA, all different types of DNA. <laughs> 23 and me and, and stuff, yeah. and no, so no luck there. Have right. you had a chance to, you know, be have any close cousins or relatives or uh, through one of those services at all? Or? So, so I do have a lot of extended family, and that's why I'm still persistent, whereas some people might have given up by now. So you said you're adopted at four months. I think you're probably older than me just because you wrote a 92. You, I didn't know about the 90. I was born in 87, but I, I wasn't aware of the 1992 incident. I uh, probably were like what five, was your? What, I guess or... you don't have to say your age, but what was your the date that you came over? Yeah, I, I was adopted in 84. Okay. 84, okay. Okay. So, you know, I, maybe that's in between where you should have records and where you shouldn't. What do you think? Too, uh, what is your what is your take on that? On records? Yeah, like your adoption records. A lot of the older folks don't have records at all, and a lot of it's just fake uh, records with fake birthdays and uh, like fake everything, right. fake names too. I think records are essential, particularly for finding people. Um, I am like even just beyond birth records. Like I am a huge proponent of records. I have three different file. Ca well, I have two file cabinets, and I'm gonna buy a third one. So <laughs> I just feel like you can't ever have too many records. Do you believe in open adoption then, that they shouldn't privatize uh, the parents, or what's your uh, take on that? Uh, I, I support open adoption, but I do understand that sometimes uh, there are some... Uh, of course, no one comes into the triad without having some sort of pain, and you never really know what the, the birth parents' pain points are. You know, there's different, you know, it's, you mentioned pain, so there's def different levels of pain when it comes to the identity, when it comes to your adoption search. Let's say the scenario is you, you're having, like, 
there might be a scenario where you don't find your parents. There might be a scenario where you do. Would that make or break your life right now? Would it affect everything on your identity? Would it would it tear you up inside? Would it make you feel like it's something you'd cry about? Or is it something that you feel like, yeah, I, you could find peace it's with it? It's not the end of the, it, the world, but I can find assurance with it. So I think that uh, everyone needs to um, kind of um, have some sort of level of expectations. So I understand that a lot of reunions are not actually, do not actually end as positively or happily ever after. But despite knowing that, I still am very driven because, um, and I don't know, it might just be a personality thing, but I'm a very curious type person. I want to know everything. I want to know, like, the circumstances of my birth, what, like, what I have in common with my extended family. Um, You know, I just want, I want answers. And I think uh, there are lots of people like me who want answers. To me, on the outside, you actually seem like a well... Uh, if you had a thesis, I assume you at least had a you, bachelor's or master's Yeah, you must degree. be a Is pretty prestigious type person and pretty, uh, like, uh, know herself. So, right. have you ever dealt with any other... Uh, with your trauma of not knowing yourself, with your... Perhaps maybe you had abandonment issues in your relationships, did any of that creep up in your life? Did you ever ha- uh, feel like you had a drink or, or do drugs to kind of numb yeah. the pain or are you actually that kind of person that's kind of hey I, I got I got to step one step forward and I don't need to put myself in those positions because I do know some people uh, that had adoption, hope, that, that, that were hor- that horrible adoptive, adoptive experiences and, and they end up like like there's some people I know that that they do the search and then their birth family doesn't want anything to do with them and then their whole life crashes and, and they're they, unable to move on from it unfortunately and and I guess that's kind of why I wanted to reach out to a lot of Korean adoptees and gather their uh, their experiences and maybe their words of wisdoms and maybe some advice that they could offer to these these people. And maybe I don't. I was wondering if you actually uh, kind of relate to those struggles at all. Right. Um, so when it comes to things like addiction, I want to make it clear that we don't. So addiction it uh, is a coping mis- mechanism that um, is also tied to a feeling of shame. Now, I don't necessarily want to connect it, like, strongly to adoption itself. I just would connect it to the feeling of shame, which can come from adoption. Um, The reason why I don't want to conflate it is that you can end up, it ends up being like a a never-ending thing. You know, you can conflate addiction with being LGBT. Well, like, being LGBT doesn't make you addicted. It just means that, like, you're dealing with so much stuff that ends up leading to shame, that ends up leading to addiction. But they're not, it, it doesn't, is not inherently connected. So do you think a lot of mental health uh, struggles are common amongst the Korean adoptee community? Have you come across that a lot? Well, honestly, I think mental health issues are kind of common to the human experience. Uh, but I did also mention in my book that there is a high rate of, like, suicide um, ideation or, uh, or actually going through with suicide or different things r- r- related to suicide in the uh, Korean adoptee community. And uh, coming across that information, have you, uh, have you come across anyone that could offer words of wisdom about uh, trying to uh, lower that, that statistic down and have Korean adoptees and their mental health struggles? What kind of things 
perhaps maybe in your own experience that could uh, you could provide uh, to those type of people that are struggling uh, with that uh, right now? Um, so, so I would say that uh, people who who are struggling right now that um, one thing that we they can be comforted in knowing is that like a lot of us have been here there. Um, it's not unique to to them. Um, the particular experience might be unique to them, but like feeling that down, um, you know, knowing that you're going through all sorts of emotional stuff. I mean, this is not, um, this is common. I think a lot of Korean adoptees have gone through that. Um, I remember I, I told a, a Korean adoptee friend of mine that, um, you know, I had some challenges with suicidal ideation when I was younger. And she just said that like a lot of Korean adoptees have that, you know, it's just, I, I hate to say it's not like, I wouldn't say that it's like, you know, a rite of passage, but I mean, it's just like, it's an experience that we, a lot of us have all had at some point or another, and that we, there's a light at the end of the tunnel, we can all get through it, you know, just, uh, you know, find your support network. So I guess one thing related to your book, you mentioned that your book delivers, like mentions a lot of people who have the experiences as adoptees, whether they're black or Asian or Korean adoptee or mixed. My question to you is, does the book provide any answers or advice when it comes to the conclusion? Or do you still feel it's all up to the individual and everyone's experience is different, so you can't really make a judgment on that? So I did kind of, um, I asked my inter my interviewees um, about that. They all have their own opinion on that on the answer to that question. So I would actually kind of say that the reader can kind of come to their own conclusions based on what they see other people's opinions are. Okay, thank you. Okay, I, I guess I wanted to ask you one question. So you said this is a thesis, was uh, a written thesis. Do you have like a PhD or a master's in something or, or what was? I do have a master's. Okay, what was your um, master's in study uh, in? What was your degree in? Uh, professional writing and editing. Okay, great. Do you actually have any other books that you have written or you have any books to write in the future? So I actually have a lot of books that I've uh, written and published. Most of them are poetry books. Um, I've only recently started using um, Wu Yi as a pen name. Uh, I used to actually go by Ame Ai, but then it is also a Japanese pen name and I thought it was more appropriate for me to embrace that I am Korean. Okay, my, my last question to you is... My brother wanted to mention that you were you yeah, co-wrote it with Janine Vance. Oh, she was the illustrator. She was the illustrator, Janine Vance. She's a How writer. How long too. have you known her? And because she's all she's also a publisher and publishes their own books. That's why I thought she maybe kind of you talks guys my brother collaborated somehow in the past. Uh, I haven't known her that long, um, but from what I can tell, she seems like a wonderful person. Um, you know, uh, she, she is going through a lot of life right now. Um, but, you know, I think we all have a hard time in this year with 2020. Did she edit your book or was she just something else? What did she do? It's, it's what said, was her role with said your she book? was an no, illustrator, so she did the drawing? She was an illustrator, yeah. Okay, so another thing is, uh, I guess I have a general question when it comes to publishing your own book. Is there a lot of work, expenses, 
investment. Did you have to do How do people do it? Because did you have to, do you have to go through a lot of blood, sweat, and tears when you're writing this? Because or there's, there's, there's uh, Korean adoptees I know that want to start publishing their own books, and I'm just curious if it's really something hard to do, or is it something that you can easily learn? So I don't know about everyone's experience. I feel like my experience has been challenging in a particular way. It's not so much the writing or the editing that's difficult for me or even um, the formatting, but what I have found to be the most challenging is that there are a large number of unseemly uh, scam type companies out there um, that just want to take your money. Um, and I feel that they don't necessarily give a book justice. Um, so I'm still hoping that like in the future I can like really kind of find a way where I'm safe from all of that. So do you have your own publisher or do you do it through Amazon and have like people read it through there or how do you get your work published? Cause you said you had a physical copy sent to I, I heard it's pretty expensive to actually uh, put it in print. I know I don't have a Kindle, but it's, it's. Uh, it's great that you actually had a, a print uh, available for it. Was that did that did that require a lot of funds for that? Uh, it it wasn't the worst. Um, so I did use a publisher for for that book. Um, however, there is also the option of just publishing directly through Amazon itself, um, and some people can choose to do that because that way they get a hundred percent of the royalties. So what was your reason why you chose a publisher just because it made things easier or they were able to distribute it or I, I think uh, I think it also had to do with um, at the time I was working with uh, someone that I, I trusted and uh, you know I, I just had a good relationship with that person particular particular person um, and I think it also helps to have a publisher for like uh, formatting, they know some things that I might not know. Um, they can get things into Amazon that maybe I don't, there might be things about Amazon I don't know. Um, so, and, and I just felt that like, it also is good for maybe, um, what's the word, credentials or, you know, I just feel that people take books more seriously when they're published. By a publisher. Uh, could you describe your day-to-day -day life? Are you actually a full-time writer then, or or do you do a secondary uh, job? Or I I am a full-time writer, but I don't work in creative writing full-time. I writing I work in creative writing, uh, you know, on the side. Okay. So do you are you a, are you someone who writes for the newspaper, magazine? Is that what it is, or editorials, or blogs? Uh, I'm actually a proposal writer. What's that experience like? It's it's kind of like being a grant writer. I pretty much pro I pretty much work on a proposal a week, which is actually quite a lot. Let me ask you: Did Guide ever reach out to you to write their grants for them at all? No. Oh, okay. I don't necessarily want to like put up front with a volunteer organization that I I write that because. Uh, I really see it more as like my full-time job and not something I want to do as a volunteer. Okay, gotcha. Oh, I see. So I guess uh, when it comes to writing, do you have any other ideas and, and plans uh, for your next uh, projects? Or uh, how has the 2020 been for you? Uh, it's been, for us, uh, it's, 
and I think maybe writers, a lot of writers perhaps are more like uh, introspective and they like to be alone. Uh, how has the 2020 been with you? Uh, are you a type of person that is introverted or, and were you able to get a lot of stuff done or how, how has it been for you? So uh, my personality type is what is considered uh, the most ex extroverted of the introverts. So, so I'm kind of a mix. Um, it's actually been pretty good for me because I, as an introvert, I do like being at home, but as an extrovert, I do like being on Zoom. So you're an ambivert. Yes. So aside from this project, were you able to get a, a lot of written stuff done, or, or what things have you been doing for this past year before you enter the new year? So actually, another book project of mine is I have submitted a screenplay to several movie companies. Um, it's a completely different uh, topic, or uh, it's basically a rom-com, <laughs> but with a minority casting. Oh, great! Yeah, because I know there's a, a few Korean adoptee uh, uh, plays you know, that we you know Janine Vance wanted to do something screenwriting too. I think she published a few as well. I don't know if she. Oh, told that's you cool. That. I honestly feel you guys could relate a lot since you both like to write. So I don't know if you right. reached out to her frequently or not. It's been a while since I reached out to her, but she's been really busy. I, I heard she's really busy till January because she has a lot of projects. Uh, Janine did reach out to me recently, so I'm going to send her a copy of my book. Oh, that's good. Cool. So what was your role with Guide, actually, since you actually did know them? I actually wasn't even aware that you were part of their group. Uh, what did they ask you to do? So, actually, I was the uh, curator for the LGBTQ uh, building. Oh, okay, gotcha. Maybe you were in one of the chats then at one point. So, I, I guess, is there anything, other uh, questions that you want to probe yeah, about? Or, or Do you want to talk a little, do you have to go, or do you want to talk a little about your adoption? What, what time is it, actually? Sure, I can talk. Okay, so I guess okay. you were adopted in 1984. Yes, I was adopted in 1984, yes. You were born when? In 83. And then, so you were, so I assume you, you were adopted sometime in March or, or? February. February, okay. So. And what, what town was that again? I'm, I'm sorry. I, in, Songnam. Uh, Songnam is a suburb of Seoul. Seoul, okay, gotcha. So this was in your written records, is that correct? That you knew you were from there? Yes. Well, I, I knew with the records. I didn't. When when I grew up, I thought that the only thing that I had was my name and my birth date. Okay. But when I got my records, then all of a sudden, a whole new world opened up for me. When when did you actually get your records? Then were you a, a kid or an adult or? Uh, so I I was the curious type. So I think probably right when I was legal, I probably reached out to get them. Okay, that's that's still pretty young then. I also did something that uh, a lot of adoptees don't consider, but I actually sent a FOIA letter to USCIS, which is U.S. Uh, Citizenship and Immigration Services, and they actually sent me back a lot of information that I didn't necessarily get from my adoption agency. That kind of brings up a topic. Are you actually naturalized then? Did you struggle with not being naturalized? or? I'm naturalized. I was naturalized when I was five. Okay, great. Okay. Um, I honestly would not have been able to be in, be in my field if I were not, unfortunately. Um, I do feel for those who are not able to get their citizenship, and I feel that that is really a shame. 
why your parents wait till you're five? Couldn't they do it right away when you came or? I think at the time you had to wait until I was, they had to wait until I was five. I'm not sure. Oh, I see. Okay. So I guess, do you have any siblings or? So I don't have any, I was not raised with any siblings. I do have, I do have three siblings that I don't know their names of. I don't know their names. Like in Korea or here? In Korea. Oh, you do? Okay. So I have a sister who's five years older. I have a brother who's younger than me. And then I also have an 11-year-old half-sibling, half-sister. So when you went through those records, were you like like smiling and kind of like happy? Did you find a sense of wholeness when when you kind of found this information at all? Or could you describe some of your feelings at that time when you were 18? Yeah, I was... um, very surprised, I think, because like I had a lot of information in my records actually um, that I was not expecting to get. So I found out that I have like five aunts and an uncle. Um, my my birth mom um, did not go to higher education. I think that she married uh, into uh, you know um, a more well-to-do family. I also got access more recently to like a pre-flight report and it's doesn't really help me in terms of like searching necessarily, but I just, I was really cute because it talked about what I was like as a baby and I just thought that was cute. I'm sorry. What was your Korean name again? It was, it was a, who I, so, so that's my pen name. But was that your adoptive name given to you or? No. Oh no, it's not. Okay. Okay. It's just a, a name that I made up. Do you have your birth name or no? Yes. You do? Okay. Uh, my birth name is Ebok Young. So I guess I wanted to ask you, how come you wanted to, to, to choose uh, a pen name uh, versus uh, using your your adopted name? Or do you find yourself not uh, associating with that at all? Or do you not have a, a feeling towards it? So I do associate with my birth name, but I uh, chose a different name for my pen name just because... So um, my original pen name was Ame Ai, and the Korean translation of that is Wu Ae. Oh, okay, cool. Does it mean something or no? It means rain love. Oh, rain love. Okay. Okay. So growing up, I guess we can go past the the baby years. How was your your childhood like? I know that you're a single kid, so you didn't have to fight with your siblings or deal with uh, uh, maybe siblings that didn't even look like you. Uh, did you find yourself? lonely at all or were you able to actually connect kind of with the world and did you find yourself fitting in as some i feel like some korean adoptees didn't really feel like they felt like they fit in uh, when they were younger and maybe even now as an adult right so i do feel i did feel kind of solitary and i do feel that it was actually maybe a benefit to me because it ended up getting me in the career of writing because i'd spend a lot of time just reading off on my own and kind of living in another, you know, fictional world or something. Do you have favorite authors that you like to go back to or? So, um, because I'm a poet, my favorite author is E.E. E. Cummings. Okay. Yeah, yeah I, I know. know. I thought you were going to choose some, uh, someone I didn't know, but yeah, I know. He actually wrote a book that's half French, half English. Actually, oh, do you actually speak some Korean at all then or, or, or no? Uh, Chokun. Chokun? Does that mean kind of little? Yeah. <laughs> Did you? Is there Korean restaurants in Colorado or no? I guess that's unrelated right now. But there are a few. There's a restaurant called Soul Barbecue. 
So when you 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 grew up in DC, correct? Yes. Was there any Korean restaurants, camps that you went to, or any Koreans you knew, or? Actually, there were a lot of Korean things. So I grew up in the white part of uh, Little Korea. So I just moved to I just moved a couple blocks or streets or whatever down to Little Korea, and I lived there for about ten years. Oh, I see. So when you grew up, but you weren't in. You were in a white area, correct? Right. Okay. Did you have a okay experience with the other cultures or the white culture or white appropriation? Did you have? Or? Did you experience actually racism too? Is another good question. When you're uh, younger, and maybe even now. So it might be. I, I even though I wouldn't say that the DC area is northern per se. It maybe has like a more northern attitude of. Um, it's very subtle racism. So it's kind of like racism that you don't realize it was racism until you look back on it. And did that, do you think that affected your upbringing at all as right now? Or I was kind of wondering, maybe that's kind of what inspired you a little bit too, to, con- to actually make a book that kind of uh, speaking about uh, racism and spreading awareness in general. Yeah. Um, so like, for example, I had like 10 bullies in school. That sounds really traumatic. <laughs> That doesn't sound like something to brush off. It just sounds like it was a lot of people that to deal with. (laughs) Well, I'm sorry you you had that trouble your childhood because you had so many bullies. Well, I kind of uh, kept within myself. Really, writing has been more like a therapeutic thing for me. Your outlook, it sounds like. Yes. Okay, so that's kind of what kept you on track and, and on the straight path. So... I guess after 18, and you lived in a white area, and then did you move away to go to a school or something like that in college? Or Yes. And yes. where did you go to, to, to school? I went to James Madison University. Um, it was, to me, it was a lot more diverse. But That's what to I was going to ask, okay. someone who came from, like, a black school, it was very not diverse at all. Oh, okay. <laughs> so. so you actually went from, a, you actually grew up in a black school then? No, no. Oh. No, I'm saying like my my friend. Oh, okay, your friend. Okay. Yeah. So, and then during this time, this is when you actually started becoming more uh, aware of other races, and is that when you uh, started dating? Uh, yeah, I I actually started uh, dating black men my freshman year of college. Okay. So that's great. It's it sounds like how how were your relationships? Do you think your adoption affected uh, your relationships at all? Or- I think that. Adoption, if you haven't really processed it fully, can be actually detrimental to a relationship because there's all kinds of uh, abandonment issues and so forth. So my question, I guess my question is, is then what was the reason you gravitated towards black people? You Is it because there's a lot there and then you ended up befriending a few or proximity maybe or was there a lack of asian people or maybe just disinterest in white people or what was the reason for that so um i don't know i think it's just how it happened you know i don't necessarily think i i really uh you know put any thought into it yeah (laughs) that's fine um one one interesting thing i wanted to, to mention though about being in college was that the one so I did know a couple of other Korean adoptees when I was in college Uh, I didn't know any in high school Uh, one of them was my friend but the other one 
I thought w this was kind of sad because um, he would he was actually kind of a bully to me, and I think and he said I found out later that the reason that was was because he assumed that I was just Korean American, so he took out all his frustration as a Korean adoptee on me because he thought I was Korean American and not a Korean adoptee. Oh, I see. Through all that time, he never he never even knew you were an adoptee, so he's just making assumptions, just going through all that mess. Yeah. I just thought that was, uh, you know, it's a shame. It didn't have to be that way. So were you able to graduate within the four years, or did you go back to school? or? or... Yeah, I graduated. Okay, great. And what did you uh, major in? English. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So I guess <laughs> yeah. between that time, did you actually, have you visited Korea at all? Yes, I visited Korea in 2010. How was that experience? Um, it was interesting. So now this is just unique to myself. Um, I like being unique because I've been unique for so long that I've kind of embraced being unique. And going to Korea, I felt like I wasn't unique anymore because everybody looked like me. <laughs> so you actually felt really enjoyed that much. And that's kind of an interesting perspective because most people when they go... To I feel like some people that when they go to Korea, oh, I belong here, they, they look like me. But with you, it was a different perspective, it seems like. Yeah, I was like, oh, I'm not special. <laughs> so you never had that calling that you wanted to live in Korea, I'm guessing. In I mean, I might consider living in Korea, like maybe when I retire or something, but or later in life. Okay, gotcha. I'm curious, since you're... You majored in English. You never thought about teaching English in Korea, or that never passed your There's mind? There's a lot of or... adoptees that do ESL lessons. Yeah, to, that's all to just curious. So. so, and I guess part of it is because, you know, like having already lost one set of parents, I didn't want to lose another set. So I was a little more clingy with my adoptive parents. And um, I even had the opportunity to study abroad in England, and I didn't want to do that because I was just too far away from my parents. So based on that, it sounds like even though it, obviously every family has some sort of issues, it whether like adopting, you're, you're, it but you like seem you to have a pretty good closeness, closeness to your family in a way. You're not that type that just wants to harp on them all like the time and cut them off or, or anything like that, huh? Well, I, I wouldn't say that we have a perfect relationship. It's more that, um, so actually, one time I asked my parents, um, you know, what made their marriage a success? Because honestly, in my family, we have a lot of people who've had like three to five wives. Gee, and, wow. Yeah. Holy cow. And, um, and my parents were like the first ones to actually stay married. And I asked them what their secret of success was. And they just said, commitment. You just make a choice. It sounded like they really loved each other. Did, do you feel like your parents love you? Yes. That's good. I guess another question is what, I don't know if this is too personal, but was there a reason why your parents decided to adopt and not have any additional children on their so own? They couldn't or have children on their own? Complications or? Right. Um, uh, my mom had surgery and was not able to conceive. Did they, did you live pretty much financially in middle class, well off, or what were their occupations when you were growing up? Uh, so my mom was a teacher and my dad worked in the CIA. <laughs> wow. So he has some secrets that he could share to some of us, huh? <laughs> well, he can't share them with me, so I can't oh. share them with you. <laughs> <laughs> Seems like an interesting job. Maybe that's why you're in the D.C. area. Because yes. your dad. Is that true? Yeah. Working in the White House, yeah. huh? 
Oh, I see. That's kind of interesting. So uh, I, I guess uh, you seem to have a pretty decent uh, relationship with your family. I know it's COVID time. Do you get along with, I mean, do you visit them during holidays at all or? Well, so we're doing Zoom, you know, because okay. they're very much at risk. Oh, yep. That's like ours. Well, I guess, additionally, what, what made you decide to move to Colorado in the since 2017? It wasn't the weed, was it? No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, so I just, I feel that every, every locale has a different uh, mood, uh, tone, or attitude to it. And I just didn't feel like I lined up with the attitude of D.C., is 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 the attitude of DC like New York where it's always bustling or am I wrong? Yes. Oh it is. So okay. actually it sometimes it's worse. So I remember one time I was uh working and it was a Friday and everyone in DC was wearing suits and ties and even the people from New York were doing casual wow. Friday. Oh wow. <laughs> they really take their job seriously. They're actually it we actually got DC got into the front page news just because everyone was still wearing suits and ties during a heat wave. Wow. So how, how long have you been living in Colorado, you said? Uh, since 2017. 2017. So, and you just found out there's actually Korean adoptees where you live? Yes. Are, do they actually have any local Korean adoptee groups at all? Or maybe you're going to start your own? Or So I think that they used to be more active, but right now they're not very active. active. Oh, okay. because of the COVID. Possibly. So it... You didn't move to Colorado because of your current... You're not married, but your boyfriend and girlfriend? Or you're, I am married. Oh, you are married. So yes. did you move because of him or... No, I met I, I met my spouse here. Oh, I see. So what, what was your reason why Colorado and no other state? So I actually had a list of like 100 different reasons. Uh, I was really just... I'd visited there before and there was just something about it that struck me. Um, it just seems like a very open-minded place, and that was something that I was uh, looking for, also more of an artsy place. Colorado actually puts more money towards public arts than any other state. Is, is rent pretty relatively affordable, or housing, or...? It's affordable compared to D.C. Oh, it is. So, I got a question then. How much is an apartment in D.C.? Isn't it, like, outrageous? Uh... I found a decent apartment for fourteen hundred a oh, month. Yeah, that's pretty. Oh, yeah, that's pretty expensive. Here, it's maybe two bedroom. You can get a thousand, eight hundred, eight hundred, a thousand. But it doesn't sound as bad as California. California even seems even worse. Yeah. Right. I, th I think L.A. is is still pretty expensive. So. Have you traveled to other places besides Korea? Well, I've we've done a lot of travel. I think uh, I would say that in terms of travel, I was privileged. Oh, really? So have you gone to other countries or? I've been to France. I've been to Canada. I've been to Hong Kong. How was Hong Kong? Was it similar to Korea or not really? So the story I like to share is it's kind of funny. So when I went to Korea, uh, the taxi drivers were like, where'd you learn your Korean? Because you're obviously not from here. Um, but when I went to Hong Kong, people would come up to me and ask me for directions. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so I I, I think we gathered a, a lot of the information about you. We talked about we talked about your book. Most importantly, is there any other last messages uh, that you would like to tell uh, about yourself or our our viewers or anyone uh, else that uh, in your mind right now? Uh, just 
be yourself. Um, like everything's going to be, everything's going to work out. Eventually there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Could you, uh, uh, explain what your title is? It's, it's such a long one. I remember it's 1992 to 2020. And what was the title of the book? So the, the full title is The Relationship Between Cats and the Black Community, 92 to 20. By Wu A. Yi. So go out and buy it. The paper book's available and also along with the digital. The digital one, I actually think it's cheaper than the, the paperback one. Is there anything else you want us to do for you or anything you want to say before we call it quits? Well, I, I think that... Uh, Thankfully, we're at the end of 2020, and I, I hope that uh, 2021 is a much better year. <laughs> Feel free to reach out to us again if you want to promote your second book. <laughs> sure. <laughs> All right. So thanks, everyone, for joining us today. It was a, it was a great topic that we were and trying to... And happy holidays. <laughs> is, and happy holidays. Uh, it's a great topic trying to tackle the racism issue, and it's just excellent that... A Korean adoptee, even though she is not black, can still empathize with black people. And I think that's a really great message that we would like to get across. And she seems to have a very level-headed when it comes to these issues. And I'm really, uh, really a privilege that she actually reached out to us so we could actually spread this message and share it. Is there anything that's else? It. That's, that's it. All right. Thank you. Yep. You have a good one. Thank you. Yep. Bye. Thanks.